0: There was a rather wealthy woman who was traveling in Europe, and she saw a bracelet that was irresistible. This was back in the day before cell phones and I think even landlines, and they were sending cable telegrams back to one another. Many of us have never done that, and some don't know that you had to pay for every word on that telegram. And so the words were brief. So she... Wires back to her husband, found bracelet, $75,000. Can I buy it? He wears back almost immediately, no, the price too high. (laughs) But, But the person working in the telegram office didn't get all the message in there. He forgot one little word, the. So the cable message came back to the wife, no price too high. (laughs) And she bought it. (laughs) Needless to say, when she got home, her husband was quite surprised. Just one little word. I'm reminded of that translation of the Bible called the Wicked Bible because the publishers missed one little word. Just one little word. Same word, the. Or no, not, I guess. Uh, It was in the Ten Commandments. We read the seventh commandment, Thou shalt not commit adultery. This said, Thou shalt commit adultery. Just forgot one little word, not. Changed the whole meaning. The point is, you and I sometimes casually study the Scriptures in such a way that we get the wrong message because we don't catch every word that proceeds from the mouth of a holy God. We need to be careful that we're not tourists when it comes to our Bible study, we're explorers. You know the difference? The tourist is a person who goes to a lot of places, you know, touches them briefly, quickly, observes what's there, gets an impression, and goes on. The explorer stays for a longer season, gets deeper into the subject, wants all the details, and makes a lasting change. Too many of us are tourists when it comes to the Bible. We just kind of flip through it and, oh, that's good. We get a little impression instead of digging deep and exploring until the word changes us. And that's what I think we're trying to do in Psalm 19. That's what we're hoping to accomplish. If you have your Bible, open it to Psalm 19. And we've divided the psalm into three sections The first deals with God speaking in the skies. And it says that the heavens declare the glory of God. Verse 1. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice, the voice of creation, is not heard. It goes out into all the earth. The words of creation, the words that creation speaks goes to the end of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's important to remember that the sun is not God. God doesn't worship the sun. God has made a little place for the sun to dwell called a tent. And God tells the sun when to come out and what to do. The sun comes out of that tent, verse 5, like a bridegroom, glorious... Coming from his pavilion, or like a champion runner rejoicing to complete his course. There's a sense of glory and there's a sense of victory in what the sun does, but all at the beckoning of Creator God. Verse 6 The sun rises at one end of the heavens and it makes its circuit to the other, and nothing is hidden from its heat. So the sun affects everything, it's light gives life, and that's the way that God has designed it. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky, all of creation, speaks of his glory. Then we noticed David, the author of the psalm, seems to jump rather abruptly to the subject of the scriptures. God speaks in the scriptures. But it's not really that abrupt of a jump. When David looks at the skies and the detail and the message they're sending forth, he says, you know, that reminds me of the Bible because God speaks there too. He reveals himself in the heavens. He reveals himself in this word. And then David spends time talking about six qualities of the Bible and six benefits. Beginning in verse 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. And then he sums it up like this. The Bible, the Scriptures, it's more precious than gold even than pure gold. And it's sweeter than honey, even honey that's dripping from the comb. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Now for the first time in this psalm, in verse 11, David mentions himself. And he says, The scriptures afford to me reward if I obey them and warning if I don't. And then he goes into the last section and gets real personal. Now, God speaks to me in my very soul. Who can discern his errors, David says. Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. And then I will be blameless and innocent, he says, of the great transgression. I like what Ben Patterson says in this portion of Scripture as he was commentating on Psalm 19. He said, do you really want to see God in the Scriptures? I mean, do you really want to see God in the Scriptures? Because what you're going to do, if you see God in the heavens and you see God in the Scriptures, that pure, glorious, holy light is going to reveal what you're like. (laughs) And it's not going to be a pretty picture. We're told that the Bible is a light, much like the sun. Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. There's the connection. Like the sun is shining everywhere in the world, so does the Bible. In fact, we're told in the middle there of Psalm 19 that the law of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, they're radiant like the sun. And they expose us. When I see God in the scriptures, I see myself. When I see his glory and I see his holiness, I see my sin. Romans chapter 3 verse 20. By the law we become conscious of sin. Or Romans chapter 7 verse 7. I would not have known what sin was except by reading the law. So the more I understand the Bible, the more I see of my own sin. If I had eyes like God to see myself as I really am, it would not be a pretty picture. And so while the psalmist is filled with praise to God, now he's disturbed. There's trouble in his soul. He's concerned. What about me? And that's what happens when you begin to read the Bible. At least it should. It should get right to your soul. God is speaking to you. What does the psalmist say? Well, first of all, there's a concern for his life that it would be pure. He's concerned that his life, somehow that all the sin in his life would be purged. When he says in verse 12, who can discern his errors... He's basically saying this. Who is aware of all his sin? Who is even cognizant of all his transgressions? So so forgive me or cleanse me from my hidden faults. The Hebrew word for fault is some moral mistake, which is a sin. And it's hidden from us, but not from God. We're not aware of it, But it's still there. David is the one who prayed, Lord, my sins are so great, I can't even count them. They're they're more than I can number. They rush over me like an ocean, and I'm drowning in them. That's an interesting perspective on our sin. It's kind of like an iceberg. Only some of it is showing on the surface there's a critical mass that's hidden below. And I dare say this is true for all of us. We are hopeless when it comes to being able to recognize all the sin that we commit. There is much that is undetected. You say, well, if it's undetected, why worry about it, right? Hidden sin can be your ruin and mine as well. It's like a disease undetected. Starts out small and if found might be cured and treated. But if not detected soon grows into the whole body. And then what is hidden and undetected begins to bring death. I like what Spurgeon said. He said in every Christian's heart there is enough tinder. So that a fire could be lit. That would produce great wickedness unless God somehow quenches the sparks that fly from temptation. (laughs) In other words, like the drought in California, one spark and what happens? Thousands of acres burn, homes destroyed, lives are lost. From one little spark and your heart is like the dry California ground. And temptation is sending out sparks constantly. The devil is throwing sparks at you, hoping that some will ignite. And what you and I need is the water of the word to wash us and God to keep us from falling in to even greater sin. There's all kinds of hidden sin in our heart. You say, well, pastor, not me. <laughs> I don't have hidden sin in my soul. This prayer proves my point, And your testimony proves the fact that you're not even aware of it, if you would be so bold as to say it's not there. God has revealed it, and that's true of the godliest of believers. In my flesh dwelleth no good thing. There is in me remaining corruption even after my redemption. I've got to be aware of that. And I love the fact that we're not under the law, but under grace, because if we were under the law, we'd have to deal with every one of those hidden sins individually. And how can you deal with something you don't know about? But we're under grace. So God allows David to bundle them up and say, Lord, forgive them. I think when you're confessing your sin, it's good to be specific. But now you have the authority of the Scripture to end your prayer like this. And Lord, all those sins I don't remember, would you forgive those too? (laughs) Just like David prayed, forgive me from my hidden sins. But notice, wanting a pure life, he talks about another type of sin. And this is the high-handed sin. If the first were sins of ignorance, this is sin of defiance. This is the willful sin. By the way, in Numbers chapter 15, we're told that if you sin unintentionally, you can bring a sacrifice and your sin will be forgiven. But now David says, I'm also aware of the fact that I could get into this defiant type of lifestyle. These are sins I'm well aware of. Keep your servant, verse 13, also from willful. Or you could use the word deliberate. Or some translations have it presumptuous sins. I like the image of the high hand a high-handed sin is a fist in the face of God I know you say don't but I'm going to I know you say do but I'm not going to I'm going to rebel the high-handed sin all sin is great all sin is grievous but some sins are greater. And that's what this sin is. It's the worst form of sin because it is so deliberate. By the way, the last phrase of verse 13, then I will be blameless and innocent if I'm kept from willful sin, from great great transgression. It doesn't say the great translation. If your translation translation has the great transgression, there's no definite article in the Hebrew. It simply says great transgression transgression and what is great transgression what is the greatest sin it's willful sin it's interesting when David committed sin with Bathsheba he said in Psalm 51 if I could give a sacrifice I would but you don't want a sacrifice that's because in Numbers chapter 15 the very portion of scripture that said unintentional sin can be forgiven there is a sacrifice for it says presumptuous sin has no sacrifice. Verse 30. The person who does anything presumptuously, be he native-born or stranger, they bring reproach upon the name of God. They'll be cut off from the people of God because they have despised the word of God. They've broken his commandment. That person shall be cut off. His guilt will be upon him. There is no sacrifice for the willful, deliberate sin. And I say to you, I'm so glad we're not under the law, but under grace, because Jesus and his sacrifice cleanses us from all sin. But it's a grievous sin, and we've got to be aware of the fact that there's a progression here. If I don't handle my hidden sins, the ones lurking in my soul, then they'll become deliberate sins. And once they're deliberate sins, they'll rule over me. You say, where do you get that? Look at verse 13. Keep your servant from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Have you ever heard of of the word an addiction? Have you ever talked to individuals that have come under, not all addictions are sin, but there, there are some addictions that come from our willful rebellion. And soon the sin, once accepted, once overlooked, becomes dominant. And it tells us what to do. It commands our life. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 6, in verse 12, don't let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. Don't let sin become the master. Don't let it dominate you. Don't become addicted to some particular habit so that it tells you when to wake up. It tells you how to spend your money. It tells you who to have as a friend. And a little later down, in Romans 6, is verse 14. Sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're under grace. You're not under the law, you're under grace. So it's the grace of God, it's the mercy of God and the person of Christ that breaks this cycle. But we've got to be aware of it. And we've got to pray, Lord, keep us from temptation. Deliver us from evil. Keep your servant from willful sins so that they won't rule over my life. Now once you have that aspect dealt with by the blood of Christ, once you have your sins forgiven, you've dealt with the hidden faults, you've dealt with the deliberate sins, now your concern is for a pleasing life. And that's recorded in this beautiful prayer in verse 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart Be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This wonderful prayer is echoed by Christian ministers everywhere before they preach. May the words of my mouth, as well as the meditation of my heart, be pleasing, acceptable in your sight. By the way, that word pleasing or acceptable is a priestly term. It referred to a sacrifice brought to the priest and he had to examine it to see if it was acceptable. Did it meet the requirements, the specifications of an offering? And was it without blemish? And if so, then it could be offered. It was an acceptable offering. The Apostle Paul is the one who said, Lord, someday I'm going to stand before your judgment seat. Someday I'm going to die, and so whether I'm at home or absent, here's my goal, that I might live a life pleasing to you. For we we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive the things done in our body according to what we've done, whether it's good or bad. My goal is to live a life that pleases God. And he mentions two areas. The words I say and the thoughts I think. My communication... In my meditation. Just as he went deeper in his discussion of sin, from hidden sins to willful, so now he goes deeper from words to thoughts. And the two are linked together. They're linked together because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, we're told in Proverbs. Or we're told in in the Gospels, actually. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We're told in Proverbs, keep your heart with all diligence, diligence, because from your heart flow all the issues of life. That means decisions made on the important issues of life are determined by your heart. It's what it is in your heart that comes through the lips, the mouth. And so words are. Actions and they deal with communication and relationships, but it all flows from the attitude of the soul what you think. So we need to make sure that our thoughts are pleasing to God if we would ever hope to have a life, words, deeds that please Him. I love what Hudson Taylor did once when he was speaking to a group of missionaries, he was the head of the China Inland Mission. And apparently, they were having some problems in their mission, and he wanted to speak to all the workers. And so he got them together, and this was planned. He had a table, he was sitting kind of on the end of the table, and had a glass of water filled to the brim. And he got exercised in his sermon. He was talking about how they need to speak to one another kindly and Christ like, and their deeds need to be done in a sacrificial way. And, and he got pounding on the table, and when he did, the water went flying everywhere. And then he paused and he said, Remember this. When you get into difficult times, only what is in you can come out of you. The difficult times they were experiencing were revealing the real attitudes of their heart. Only what is in you can come out of you. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Have you ever been in a difficult situation and you said something that you really shouldn't have said and you feel so bad about it and you come back later to apologize and say, I'm really sorry, That that isn't me. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was you. It, you may not want it to be you, but it was you. It was the you that didn't have time to filter the words. It was the you that lashed back from the abundance of your heart. You say, well, I don't like that picture. Like I said, the closer we get to God, the picture's not pretty. Shows us we need a Savior. The law shows us our sin, shows us our need of a Redeemer. So I've got to fill my heart with something that when I get into a difficult situation, what comes out of me is grace. I love what was said of John Bunyan who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he was so immersed in the word of God, they said if you would cut him, his blood would come out bibline. (laughs) Isn't that a great description? Wouldn't it be great if people said of you, that person is so godly, if you cross them, what you'll get is not cursing, but scripture and kindness and the mercy of God because what is in you comes out. It's a mercy of God that he allows us to see ourselves in those bad situations so we can cry out to God, forgive me for my hidden faults, and Lord, keep me from presumptuous sins. And Lord, may my, may my life what I say and what I think be acceptable in your sight. John Wesley was one time robbed. Apparently he came home just as the thief was getting away with things, and Wesley ran after him. And say, you've said to him, you forgot something. And the, the, the thief stopped. I don't know why, but he stopped. I guess no one had ever said that to him before. And Wesley caught up with him and said, you forgot something. And I think he gave him a Bible and he said, someday you'll be sorry for what you did tonight. And this book will help you take care of your sin. And he turned and walked away. Now, if I get robbed... I I don't think I'll run after the thief, number one. I'm going to call in reinforcements. I'm going to call in the police. And, And, you know, get that guy. I want justice. I want my things back. No, Wesley was crossed, and what was in him came out of him grace. How can I fill my heart? How can I think the thoughts of God in such a way that... When I am crossed, pleasing things will come out. Maybe it's by allowing the Word of God to fill my soul to the place that the Word of God begins to change my thinking and I become renewed in the spirit of my mind. It's letting the Word of God so fill my soul that my thought structures now are biblene. And my desires are pleasing to him. May the meditation of my heart be acceptable. Maybe if I start meditating on the word, then it will be acceptable. There's nothing more acceptable to God than his word. We've just been told the benefits of the word. Listen to these verses that use the word meditation in the book of Psalms. Just a few of them. Psalm 1. The godly person is the one who delights in the law of the Lord... And on his law they meditate day and night. Psalm 77, I will meditate on all your work and I will talk of your deeds. By the way, that seems to speak of creation. So you've got creation and the law of God, the very two things that David's talking about in Psalm 19. Psalm 104, may my meditation of you be sweet. What did he say about the word of God? It's sweet like the honeycomb? Or Psalm 145, 143, I will meditate the, on, I will remember the days of old, I will meditate on all your works and I will muse on the works of your hands. That's creation. That's providence and salvation. Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. And Psalm 119 also says, Make me understand the way of your precepts so that I will meditate on all your wonderful works. Eight times in Psalm 119, the word meditate is used. The best way to have your thoughts be pleasing to God is yet let, to let your thoughts be biblical thoughts. And why should we do this? Well, look at the last part of verse 14. You are my rock, Jehovah, Yahweh. You are my rock and you are my redeemer, Rock means foundation, protection, fortress. The one who stabilizes my life. Redeemer means the one who saves me. He stabilizes my life and he saves me. He he forgives my sin and he becomes the foundation of all my living. The Hebrew word for redeemer is goel, which means kinsman redeemer. It's a law that was very popular in the Old Testament. Do you remember the kinsman redeemer? The kinsman redeemer is the nearest relative who comes to the aid of family when they are in danger or a difficult situation. The best example probably in the, in the Bible is the book of Ruth. Ruth was a very interesting individual from Moab. Naomi and her husband and her boys left The Holy Land, Bethlehem area, because of a famine, and went to Moab, and there the boys married. And somehow all the men died, and Naomi was left with two daughters in law. The one stayed in Moab, but Ruth said, Wherever you go, I'm going to go. Wherever you lodge, I'm going to lodge. Your God is going to be my God. By the way, we use that for weddings, but it's between a, a mother and her daughter in law. And so Ruth tenaciously clung to Naomi and they went back to Bethlehem. But they didn't have the food they needed and they didn't have a lot of things. And so Ruth went out to glean in the fields and she just so happened to glean in the field of Boaz. That's divine providence. I think it was later found out he was a relative. Naomi says, he's one of our relatives. Maybe he'll be the kinsman redeemer. Boaz liked Ruth. When, he was, when the subject was brought up, he was very favorable to it, except he said, there's one person who's closer than I am. I'll see if he wants to be the kinsman redeemer. So they went to the gate of the city to talk to the elders. That's where all business was transacted. And Boaz says to this nearest relative, you know, Ruth and Naomi, they've come back from Moab and their family, and you're the nearest of kin. You need to, to be the kinsman redeemer if you're willing. And, and if you'll pay the price, you can redeem them and... Take in the inheritance and care for them. And the guy says, I'll do it. Must have been a pretty decent inheritance. I'll do it. Boaz had all this planned. He said, oh, by the way, when you do that, you have to marry Ruth the Moabitess. And the guy says, I can't do that. My family's never going to let me do that. I decline. I pass. Next guy in line is Boaz. And he says, I'll do it. He's in love with Ruth. And he redeems them. And Boaz and Ruth, I think their, their grandson is Jesse. And Jesse gives birth to David, the guy who's writing this story. And David, his greatest son, is Jesus, the Messiah. Who becomes our kinsman redeemer. Jesus is called the kinsman redeemer in, o- in the New Testament. You say, well, how is he our nearest of kin? He became a man. You say, there's a lot of people closer to me than Jesus. Yeah, but none of them can redeem you. And none of them are willing. Jesus says, I will. I will. And he dies on the cross so that all of our sin can be forgiven. And he has saved you from hidden sin and willful sin. His atonement gives you life that will never end. And that's why. You say, Lord, make my life pleasing to you. You're my rock and my redeemer. May my actions and my attitudes be acceptable in your sight. That ought to be our prayer. And when this world sees Christians living like that, the world will be changed. He was a Nobel Prize winner, great missionary, doctor. And he was coming into Chicago, 6'4", bushy white hair, bushy white mustache. Comes off the train and the reporters are there wanting to talk to Dr. Albert Schweitzer. And he said, "Uh, I'm glad to talk with you. Excuse me a moment. And he walked through the sea of reporters and found a lady who was struggling to carry her two suitcases. And he helped her with the suitcases all the way to the bus. And she got on the bus and he returned and apologized to the reporters. I'm sorry to keep you waiting, he said. And they went on with the interview and one reporter wrote these words. I have never seen a walking sermon until today. And that's what this world is looking for. People whose lives are walking sermons of how to please God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will speak to our hearts today about being forgiven and cleansed from all kinds of sin, known and unknown, unintentional and willful. And Lord, we're thankful that we can be cleansed because of the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, our Rock, our Redeemer. And therefore, our prayer this morning as Christians, as believers, is that may the words that come out of our mouths and may the thoughts that we entertain in our hearts Be pleasing in your sight. May that be true in Jesus' name, amen.